0: welcome to residential tech talks I'm Jeremy Glowacki, executive editor of residential Tech today on this week's podcast Franklin carp joins us from Long Beach New York where for the past year he has been principal of Franklin carp and company a comprehensive consulting firm for the residential tech integration business a 30 year veteran of AV retail and custom integration in New York City and the New York suburbs, our guest today offers services in all phases of operations management with a particular focus in the custom integration and retail sectors. Franklin is a longtime industry friend who I remember all the way back to the late 90s when I attended manufacturer press conferences at the Midtown Manhattan-based Harvey Electronics, the legendary AV retailer for which he served as CEO at the time. I've been remiss not having him on the podcast sooner, but better late than never. Franklin Karp, <laughs> thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, Thanks for having me, Jeremy. It's uh, it's going to be fun.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, um, as I said, I, I connected with you back when you were so, um, you know, legendary to have the manufacturers who were coming in town in New York City wanted to promote a new audio product, a new speaker. They would at times have their press event at your facility there uh, at Harvey Electronics. So connected with you there. And I think we both went to the Runco getaway from time to time. Yes. Uh, So we crossed past there. I I remember sitting on a shuttle (laughs) at an airport. I want to say it was like Dallas, Fort Worth or something. And we're sitting across from each other going from one part of the airport to another. And I'm with my wife because we're headed to Mexico for Sam's, Sam Runco's big event. And I'm like, I know that guy. <laughs> and, and then you didn't recognize me at first and said that my, my photo in the magazine needed to be updated because I didn't look like <laughs> myself anymore. I don't know why that comes to mind, but I do remember.
1: I, I, I remember that story.
0: Okay. <laughs> Very good. Well, I want to talk more about your time at, at Harvey Electronics and um, – and then your more recent run as CEO at um, Audio Video Systems in Plainview, New York, Long Island. But I um, I want to first talk about how you got to Harvey because I don't know your backstory at all. I I know you know that you uh, you went to Hunter College there in the New York area, and yeah. beyond that, I don't really know how you got into the um, to the audio business, the AV business. So can you give us kind of your backstory there?
1: Sure, sure. I I I was. Uh... Now we're going to go back because you're going to. It's going to be revealed that I'm more than thirty year veteran.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, you know, somewhere I read twenty plus, and I think that was probably a, a nice right. little uh, LinkedIn technique that I. My wife said, "If you're looking for a job, don't tell anyone how old you are." Oh yeah,
1: that, that's exactly what I was told. Yes, <laughs> the, uh, I, I uh, actually uh, was a an audio nut you know, starting in into the late 60s okay. and early 70s. So uh, when I started college in 71, okay. uh, I was fortunate enough to be introduced to the owner of a company called Stereo Warehouse. And they were located in Brooklyn. Okay, And uh, I wound up working there on Saturdays selling audio he was one of the original discounters when there was still a thing called fair trade Mm. and um i was making uh 25 bucks in cash on saturdays and back in those days that was a lot of money so that afforded me the ability to to go out on dates and and lead a nice uh, life while i was going to college and um ultimately uh my love of the audio business uh, overcame any desire I had to, you know, continue going to college. Although I went for four years, I didn't finish. Okay, Um, And I, I joined a full-time stereo warehouse and that that company later morphed into uh, Rapson's. They bought a company on 57th street, which was a very famous location. And uh, I worked there uh, until Gee, I worked there until 1990, I think.
0: Oh, okay. So that brought and, you really right up to, to yeah, the time that I I, mean.
1: I actually, uh, it's, you know, those who know me know the story. But I uh, I married the boss's daughter, but I divorced the boss and left. And then I wound up joining Harvey Electronics.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: and uh, that's really where I did my uh postdoctorate work. Uh, <laughs> I learned anything and everything about um, business, a public company, accounting, uh, my time at Harvey. And I joined there as a merchandise manager and then moved up to VP and then ultimately CEO and went through a bankruptcy and then took the company public again. So uh, it was quite, a, quite an education for the uh, 16 years that I was there.
0: Yeah, you don't You don't experience all of that typically with your typical your your usual custom integration firm, and obviously the AV retail is kind of a dying um, art there. But uh, what um, as merchandising manager, uh, you were in charge of what was sold, what was brought in lines. That was
1: that was my job, And, and when I joined the company, there was no custom install involved at Harvey. Uh, we eventually you know moved into that business and that became a huge part of our business. Uh, you know, so as the merchandise manager, I had a buyer reporting to me. And uh, it was uh, quite the learning experience because the uh, the accounting, the uh, POS control systems were something that I had to learn uh, from scratch, basically, because where I came from, they were still writing sales receipts on the more business form machines. Okay. Okay. So you wrote, it was carbon paper and then you pull the crank and you pulled out an invoice.
0: I remember (laughs) that.
1: Yeah. (laughs) yeah. So when I went to Harvey, all of a sudden those machines didn't exist. Everything was done with uh, computers. So uh, I got a crash course in that.
0: Well, there's gotta be um, folks who are just like, you know, really interested in what was it like being in AV retail in midtown Manhattan of all places, right? It's like, uh, even at the time that I was there in the late nineties, it seemed kind of like from a different era almost, and you guys were still going strong, but, and you'd had your, your ups and downs obviously, um, with the bankruptcy, but what, um, what was it like? What kind of customers were coming in the door back in those, you know, those nineties, era heavy retail In
1: in those days 45th street the harvey 45th street store was legendary it was known throughout japan uh korea and the country and it was really uh the place and the list of clientele was uh you know amazing uh Henry Kissinger's wife would call up and say, "Henry forgot how to operate his CD player." You know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. it was that kind of store. Um, uh, Sting was a uh, Sting was one of the few people who actually had a charge account there. Oh, and uh, Frank Oz of uh, he was another guy who had a charge account. It was just it was a place that always amazed me. Who would walk into that store? and uh, be shopping there. And it was uh, very unique in that, you know, we sold more Macintosh product out of that store than I think any other single location in the country. It was just, you had the right clientele and you had the right sales staff and you had the right reputation. Everything was right about that.
0: Now, from the audio side, was it just audiophile level um, components and speakers, or did you kind of have a range that allowed, I don't know, a midtown Manhattan location wouldn't necessarily worry about your, your, your middle market kind of client, but um, customer, what, did you have a range of, of. Yeah, you,
1: you had middle market product. I mean, we sold a lot of Denon mm-hmm. and Marantz. It wasn't all Macintosh and, and, and Kef and uh, whatever other high end product we sold at the time. We were, we were middle uh, to high. We were not a, a tweak shop. We were not a, a lyric hi-fi. Uh, although we sold Macintosh and Audio Research, but we had a broader appeal uh, because we didn't uh, we didn't employ um, audio snobs, if you will, for mm. lack of a better term. Yeah, it was a much more welcoming uh, retail experience. And of course we were in the video business.
0: Yeah. I was going to say that that was where I think I came in, you were already working in flat panel TVs at that point, yeah. plasma. Yeah. So that became yeah. a big piece of your business as well. Like yeah. it did for a lot of companies.
1: The first $20,000 50 inch pioneer plasma TV would put it on display in 45th street. And I was absolutely amazed um, I was I was on. I used to spend a lot of time, as much time as possible, on the floors of the different stores, and I overheard a, um, a woman talking to her husband. And at that time, we were still selling rear projection televisions, those oh. big behemoths. Yeah, and we had this one pioneer hanging on the wall, and the husband's going, "I want a big screen." She goes, "You can have that." <laughs> And that was $20,000. And the $5,000 rear pro over there with a the bigger screen, he couldn't have that. <laughs> and I said, that to me was the light bulb going off. I said, this is the world. I said, we need to just change everything we're merchandising because this is going away faster than, you know, we can throw them away. And uh, so that was, that was quite an experience for me. I said, okay, that has total 100% WAF.
0: Yeah, absolutely, the wife acceptance factor, and you, yeah. you, you're you're even kind of like dialing it back to the historical time of the first TV in the window, black and white, and then the first color TV, and people coming by and actually looking in a window of a retailer, yeah. which yeah. you know at a certain point that didn't happen anymore. Um, the the types of stores were not necessarily in a metropolitan area where you could experience that transition like they were doing right there and have that client base too that said $20,000 is what I'm able to spend on this thing that... Yeah,
1: you know, we, American Express was our number one credit card, so it didn't <laughs> matter, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's it starting to come back to me the last time that I was in that the store and what the product introduction was. And it was like a media server product, I believe.
1: Early media server, Yes. Yeah.
0: So there, there's a, just a time, you know, moment in time as well. Um, when we are trying to figure out how to save digital music onto, onto a hard drive for the first time and bring it out, you know, kind of in an elegant way. And the, those products obviously, (laughs) you know, whatever it
1: was doesn't exist anymore. That's for sure.
0: That's right. That's right. (laughs) So, um, and then the, the, the chapter 11 experience and, and then the public company experience. What can you tell us about that? I know some of that probably is like a, a, a painful memory, but uh, some of it's probably pretty, pretty great when well, you bring your company back to life, you know, what that the, means.
1: The company was public and a part of a larger, uh, conglomerate, um, uh, called the Harvey group. And, uh, so Harvey Electronics was just a small part of what at one time had been a rather large group of totally unrelated companies. Mm. You know, one was a food brokerage company. I mean, what they have to do with Hi-Fi? Nothing. Right. But, um, and then eventually what happened was in the early 90s, all those other companies were either sold off or in one case, um, they sold it off and they wound up in litigation with one of the one of the guys who worked for that company and then years later he won his case and the settlement was in the millions of dollars and at that point the only company that remained in Harvey Group was Harvey Electronics ouch and so the board the board said well we're going to you know pay off this judgment and the CEO at the time he said why don't we go bankrupt and get out from under this, you know, obligation, which didn't, it wasn't even our fault. Hmm. And they refused and they refused. And what happened was as things went along, also business went into a cycle of downturn. So little Harvey Electronics was carrying this load and ultimately got pushed into bankruptcy anyway,
0: hmm.
1: you know, and yeah. so, at that point, you know, this, the trading of the stock is uh, suspended. Mm-hmm. You're no longer public, although we still maintain the accounting principles involved with being public. Okay. And at that point, the control of the company changed as well. So at that point, we, uh, we went out to find, you know, some uh, investors to put money into the company, which we ultimately did. And so they took control of the company. And their goal was obviously to take it public again, hmm. and which we ultimately did. I think in '98 was okay. when we did that. And by that point, I was the CEO of the company. We did the roadshow, and you know, fed the uh, brokers and and did everything you had to do to get them hyped up to sell your stock. Hmm. And uh, it was a five dollar stock, which was the minimum you could put it out at the Nasdaq Small Cap anyway. And so we took it public again, which was, at the time, the cheapest way to raise capital to expand the business, reopen locations, and grow the business, which is what we did. And so we took it from that point when the company was probably well under $20 million. Ultimately, we got it up to $46 million.
0: And you were running how many locations at that point?
1: At that point, we were eight locations.
0: Okay, that's a lot of locations, and
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Did you have? Um, was it just like Long Island and uh, Manhattan? Long
1: Island, Long Island, Greenwich, Connecticut.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: New Jersey. We had three locations. We wow. had two locations in Manhattan, um, and then we had a, a warehouse facility uh, and an outlet center at one time. Yeah,
0: and was, so, where did it so so? Where did it go to the point where you ended your time there? Um, was that uh, uh, an end just for you or for the company when you left?
1: Well, it, it, it ended for me because the the people that came in uh, after the public offering because we did another we went about doing another capital raise. And the people who got involved with that capital raise, um, they had different plans for the company. They wanted to double the size of the company overnight via acquisition because they had granted themselves millions of options. And so it really unfortunately became a stock play for the people who took over. And at that point, they wanted their own guy in there and I was the CEO. So that's the guy who's gonna walk the plank. (laughs) And so I did, Um, I had a contract, which uh, was good. Mm. Uh, But uh, ultimately the wonderful company that Harvey was, and it was a wonderful company and it was a wonderful time in my life. um, They succeeded in killing it. And uh, because the money we raised They really used that money to try and acquire an operation down in uh, Washington, D.C. area, which you would have been familiar with, Meyer Emco. Oh, yes. So they spent a lot of time and money trying to buy Meyer Emco. But John Meyer, to his credit, said, I don't want stock. I want cash. Mm. And they couldn't raise any more cash. (laughs) And uh, so ultimately, that deal never uh, transpired. And ultimately they figured out a way to kill a beautiful business that could have to this day with changes in footprint and other things could have, you know, still be in existence today.
0: Yeah. you as I was going to bring up that you're a member of HTSA, I've been for um, a long time as yeah. a buying group and now it's kind of represented differently, but basically a buying group and you've been able to collaborate and compare notes with your peers that, that have done this same career path as you, and maybe not the same market, but, um, you know, multiple locations, single locations, whatever it is, seeing the AV retail and hi-fi business change and morph into custom integration. And um, what, um, ha- have you seen anything that compares to what Harvey was at its best with the eight locations uh, when you compare notes with your your peers?
1: Well, there, you know, it's it it's nice to see that there are places around the country that still have a retail hi-fi, if you will, footprint where they're doing business uh, the old-fashioned way, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, and I think part of it has to do with it, just how much how expensive it is to do business in New York. Um, that. I can't name an operation in New York that mirrors what Harvey was. Uh, But if you look at guys like, uh, you look at Gramophone down in Mm -hmm. Maryland. Sure. I think they've got a very, and they've actually taken things a step further with their uh, kitchen and bath uh, operation, their lighting lab. I mean, so they, they, you know, matured uh, a traditional hi-fi business into a, a true hybrid, CI retail business, which is something that I know had we been given the time, Harvey could have done the same thing.
0: Yeah. I I think, um, you know, you've obviously seen AV retail um, where it's multiple locations around the region, wherever it is, or the country, um, like a sound advice type of a model. Right. But I'm not sure it would have been at the the quality level necessarily. And I may be wrong um, that Harvey was at its peak and, you know, the reputation and having all those locations. I just wonder, you know, when a company comes in a group of investors and they want to expand, it seems like it always falls apart that it's a really hard thing to scale.
1: It is. And part of the problem is that you can be an excellent bean counter. You can be excellent with all those different processes But um, the business itself still hinges a lot on relationships and understanding, uh, not just understanding technology, just understanding how people enjoy the technology. And uh, I think the people who have been successful have come from retail and have um, morphed and have learned to adapt and You know, you're still dealing with wealthy people, uh, but you're dealing with them in a different way. And, uh, you know, so those who have, you know, seen, you know, looked into the crystal ball and said, okay, you know, for a while, uh, control, you know, AV control, it was a tremendous opportunity for guys into the, you know, 90s, the late 80s, 90s and the aughts. I mean, guys of my generation, many of them got rich, Mm. uh, basically selling control. Mm -hmm. Um, I dare say that for the newcomers coming in and for the guys who are in business now who are much younger, their opportunity is going to be different. Right. Dictated by different demands and different needs and different uh, beliefs on the part of their their clients and their future clients, so that control in and of itself is not going to make anybody rich.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it, it, that's my belief. It just because you know technology has moved way past there. And, yeah. and even if it hasn't moved past, people believe it has.
0: Right, right. It's decentralized. It you know it's more local current control again. It's hard to even sell a remote because people. rather have what came with their tv or their 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 streaming box the the
1: the the supply the the tv the uh, cable suppliers have done a phenomenal job of leapfrogging the technology that most integrators are selling Mm -hmm. and what's the cost
0: yeah minimal minimal yeah and and so then you talk about whole home and it's it's an app. They'd rather use the app than to have like a touch panel necessarily in their wall. Or I mean, I still like having that myself. But I'm I'm kind of retro. Great, that you know, right. that, that's what I've learned about in the industry. But uh, I can see where some people are just like, why can't I just use an app to control my music and the whole house? And you know. yeah, the
1: the younger generation that's coming up, the future clients. Some of them are clients now, and they're going to become clients. Their, their, The way they interact with technology is totally different from the way you and I interact with it. Forget about our parents. Right. And, uh, you know, so it just keeps it puts a different spin on where the opportunity is going to be for guys who are going to stay in the integration business.
0: Well, we will continue our conversation with Franklin Karp after the break. <laughs> Today's episode of Residential Tech Talks is brought to you by NICE, the global manufacturer of smart home security and building automation solutions. NICE is bringing together 30 years of innovation with award-winning products from Elan, SpeakerCraft, and Panamax to create a holistic ecosystem for builders, integrators, and consumers. Learn more about how you can create one home with one solution at go.nice.com for you.com backslash RTT. Welcome back. We're talking with Franklin Carp from Franklin Carp & Company. Franklin, um, I, I, I know we're, we're doing a This Is Your Life kind of retrospective here, but I think we're also bringing in current day stuff as well, so I kind of like that. Um, let's talk about your your run, which was a, a lengthy one probably as long as you were at Harvey or about uh, as CEO of Audio Video Systems and Plainview, right. View, Long Island. Um, you had a really successful run there. I most recently connected with you editorially at my current magazine, residential, um, tech today. Um, w- when you were doing a Milson systems solution yeah. there, and, uh, mm-hmm. that was, that was great. Cause Richard Milson's one of my favorite people, uh, obviously an HTSA guy, but had his, his own kind of creation there. So it was, it was you sort of embracing a new concept, which I thought was great. Cause, being a crusty veteran, you know, sometimes you can go, "Eh, I know how this thing works. I don't need to do this." But h- here was this wonderkin kind of guy saying, "I've got a system that can make your plant, your your staging of your uh, project more efficient when you go out in the field." Um, so I, I, I was impressed with that. You were running a group of what 80 employees at one point. Yeah. Um, so how was that different? It, it, it was full on custom integration, right? No, no retail,
1: no retail, no showroom, um, everything done, uh, you know, through architects, designers, builders and past old clients and dealing with, uh, the top, even above the top 1%, you know, so, you know, F- Forbes 400 type clientele, um, but fortunately, uh, my retail background and the people that I dealt with uh, at Harvey, a lot of them were the same. Mm-hmm. So that was never an issue. Um, the go-to-market was completely different, and um, the the whole um, and at that time, so that was 06, mm-hmm. You know, control traditional control, and at that time, you really had two brands, one one a 600-pound Gorilla and then a few also Ryans. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was where everybody concentrated, and you were selling touch panels that were three, four, dollars $5,000 touch panels. Right. And everybody was making a lot of money. Um, the interesting thing about it was that um, many of the guys who were still making a lot of money in spite of themselves – um, they were their deliverable wasn't even that good, but the demand was such uh, that you know people either were convinced they needed it or wanted it, so that a lot of guys who shouldn't have been allowed into people's homes were, and a lot of guys made a lot of them. Fortunately, most of those guys are gone. Yeah, um, but those were mistakes that some of the manufacturers made in their zeal to sell more stuff. You know, um, you, you, you can't become a brain surgeon because you bought a book on brain surgery. <laughs> um, you know, there's a lot more attack. And quite honestly, you really shouldn't be an integrator unless you've got experience and good people, you know, programming, installing, uh, and selling. Right. And, uh, you know, and that's one of the things that's changed in the last few years in that you can no longer uh, fudge it.
0: Right. There were
1: a lot of guys fudging it for a long time and they made a lot of money.
0: Which is uh, kind of uh, kind of interesting that you could because it would seem that programming basically from scratch, a, a touch panel might be a barrier to entry, but people were trying to do it anyway. and And now that's pretty much, you know, it's, it's more gone. of a, yeah, you don't do that anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it's gone. I mean, um, and you mentioned Richard Milson. Um, and I, quite honestly, years ago, um, well before he, he, he was a member of HTSA, he spoke at a conference and he was speaking about uh, best practices, standards and practices. And uh, I left that conference uh session and i said this guy's the smartest integrator i've ever met Mm -hmm. and to this day i will you know swear on a stack of bibles that that's the truth yeah and um I, i he gets embarrassed when i say it but he he brought integration he brought the process to another level and for the dealers who have adopted his thought process and his, his complete manner in which he, you know, delivers a pro, uh, an end project, there is nothing better. There is, and there is nothing that is ultimately when done correctly, more profitable. So not only is the deliverable the best that can be, but you can also be more profitable uh, in a category where, profitability is being challenged right you know you know when the ipad came out i said "Uh Mm uh-oh i did a spreadsheet of how many touch panels we sold and then i did a spreadsheet of how many if we replaced them with ipads which ultimately was happening how much gross profit we were going to lose the number was in six figures wow it was scary yeah and that continues to happen in other categories.
0: Yeah, and, and that's where you see the evolution from entertainment technology, essentially, is what I kind of broadly call what, what it is that custom integrators do. Obviously, there's also lighting control, which isn't necessarily entertainment. It's, it's an infrastructure technology. But then beyond that to lighting fixture Um, installation and lighting design so you're becoming more integral to all the technologies of the home as opposed to just um, the AV and things that maybe seem like you could get somewhere else or do yourself Um, and and so that must be an interesting evolution for you now that you're not an integrator anymore watching that uh, seeing it very clearly from the HTSA angle because that group is a leader visionary with that um, but thanks to you know some specific people in the organization um, what, what have you uh, observed there um, from a from a different vantage point with lighting
1: well, it's interesting when I joined AVS in 06 um, I got my first real exposure to real lighting panelized lighting control right. And as I talked to, at that time, there were two employees at the company who were involved in lighting and Mm -hmm. the rest of the employees were involved with AV. And I looked at the hardware, I looked at the margins and I said, this is the best business we could be in. No ifs, ands, or buts, because unlike AV, People actually needed lighting control. People, architects appreciated lighting control. Designers appreciated it. And so I watched and I, I like to think that I helped grow that business at AVS dramatically that I think when I left, there were 10 people in the lighting department And without a doubt, the most profitable division of the company. And then that's when uh, Lutron, you know, a couple of years ago when they started with Ketra. Yeah. And then I was totally knocked out by that. And I and then, you know, um, it was coincidental that uh, going back a few years ago, John Robbins and I, uh, I was on the board at the time. We interviewed Tom Doherty for the job he has now. Right. And Tom was a lighting fanatic. I mean, he's an AV guy at heart, but lighting was his passion. Sure. And um, we hired him and that started the ball rolling for HTSA as far as getting into the lighting fixture end of the business. And I believe, I know that integrators who are embracing taking the time Uh, when possible, even adding a lighting designer to their staff. That is what's going to sustain, give them growth, give them profitability for many years to come. Because um, you you don't buy lighting fixtures online, um, and you certainly don't get proper lighting designs online, so it, there is there is a tremendous opportunity for integrators who embrace light. You know, there are a lot of guys who still aren't in lighting control, which is mind boggling. But those who are in lighting control and who have you know branched into fixtures um, are mo- moving in the right direction. I mean, are the fixtures as profitable as some of the other products? No, but when you deliver pallet loads of lighting fixtures to a project. And all you did was do the design, do the purchase order, and get the stuff there because the electricians are installing them. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad gig. Yeah, you know. I, and and then the other thing that I loved about the lighting control and lighting fixture marriage for integrators was that the problem that integrators always had was we didn't have total control from end to end. Right. You know, something would happen ultimately in lighting, especially in lighting control. As um, what would happen is, especially as LED became the dominant fixture, and then LED had all its peculiarities and difficulties with matching the right driver so that they dim properly. And ultimately, I saw this happen many times. The lighting crew did everything right in the lighting control. But the electrician made a change, or somebody made a change. They didn't get the right drivers, and all of a sudden, the the fixture is not behaving properly, and it's your fault, right? Because we're the control guy, and mm-hmm. we're the we're the integrator, and so I when I saw that an integrator could control from end to end, make sure it's the right driver, make sure it's the right fixture, the deliverable. Becomes a piece of cake, and the satisfaction level goes up exponentially, and then the integrator is no longer being cursed.
0: Right, and and you're also throwing in the fact that LED lighting doesn't necessarily mean good quality light in the home. Right, and and now now you're as a homeowner who's spending a lot of money on this renovation or new build, you're actually putting someone who has knowledge not just putting up a whatever the cheap fixture is that you you know throw into everything but someone has knowledge of quality light hopefully you know if you're properly in you know involved in the educational process as an integrator but you should be into it and know all about it and be able to educate the client enough to say this is worth your uh, you know time with me and then you're getting in earlier in the project, right? So you have the opportunity to influence further that, that's, investment.
1: That's the key getting in as early as that. A lot of times, uh, integrators are the last trade hired. Right. The electricians in there way before, obviously, the plumbers, the uh, framers, and everybody else. And the truth is, the integrator should be in there from the beginning to make sure that they can have the proper wiring access. And at the end of the day, when the job's all done, the plumber's gone, the electrician's gone, the HVAC guy is gone, the integrator is still, you know, apart and still married to that client. And, you know, if they were able to do everything right from the get-go, you're going to have a happy client. Yeah. I've heard something... I used to say to guys, I said, you know, our clients can afford much better lawyers than we can.
0: <laughs> right. I know. That's rough. I, I, one of the, my favorite things I heard recently, and I can't remember who I need to give credit to this, but they, they said, we're the ones that are sitting on the client's sofa like months after everyone else has left. So shouldn't we have <laughs> the involvement early on so that things aren't a problem? You exactly. Exactly. Um, so the, you know, you are the one with the, with the touch factor there. Um, you'll never talk to your, you know, your electrician probably again. Um, you'll find one later on that's different if you right. need something done, but, um, well let's, let's bring it up to current day a little bit more than we already have and talk about your, your consulting business now. And, uh, what, what types of, uh, projects you've worked on. I, I know you, You've seen thousands of business scenarios over your career and, and have best practices, I'm sure, that you, you can apply. What, what is it that you have done um, since you first told me at Lightapalooza a year ago um, in Dallas that you're going to do this? And it's been a year now, uh, more yeah. than a year. How, how have things been going? What have you been working on?
1: I've been working with uh, a client from France, who has uh, been an integrator for 60 years. So clearly the integration business didn't exist for 60 years, but they were electricians first. And uh, they're branching into uh, the New York market following their clientele. Okay. So I've been working with them. It's a company called Henry. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Michael Sherman is on the uh, CDA board and uh i've been working with a few other uh small integrators uh with one guy i, I told him i'll be your consigliere <laughs> and um it, it's been very interesting it's been challenging um i've done some work uh for scott struthers yeah on his uh you know philanthropic side okay and uh the other thing that i'm involved with now is Kat Toomey. Yes. um, And I worked together when I was at AVS, and she handled my uh, marketing, social media, and uh, website. And uh, when I left AVS, we're friends. You know, she helped me with my website, my logo, uh, press release. And uh, when we were um, at HTSA last, fall she started talking about um an idea about doing video production hmm. for integrators custom video inter- uh, production and part of that stems from the fact that we worked with a videographer director and we did a milson video for avs a young man named johnny Fratazzi. um so he's been doing work for Lutron and Sony, uh, Leon, and a bunch of other uh, integrators around the country. So he's built up this tremendous library of video. So Kat, Johnny, and I have bounced around some ideas about going to market with a video production, uh, custom video production, because uh, one of the things that I've always been incredibly insistent upon with anything that we did in marketing whether it was at harvey or at avs was that it'd be unique and the our voice no one else's voice not right. even close to anyone else's voice okay and so we we've we were at uh, we were at the uh, spring conference mm-hmm. and uh we met with about 15 different integrators and put together a proposal and a a, um, uh, presentation, and the response has been tremendous. Uh, Video Mojo is the name of the company. There should be a press release uh, next month. Cats in Italy right now. Okay, Johnny's in Spain. So um, that's a very exciting addition to what I've been doing, and it also puts me back in front of some integrators who could really use some help. Hmm. So whether we're helping them uh, with their, you know, creating videos, because let's face it, um, it's nice to do a a newsletter. It's nice to do uh, things like that. But the truth is people are not reading anymore. They're viewing.
0: Don't I know it.
1: (laughs) You know it. So um, to do a video newsletter versus doing print, is really where it's got to go. And so we we know that we have a tremendous opportunity for integrators. And we can do it at a uh, reasonable price uh, with or without um, on-site shoot.
0: Oh, OK. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had to do everything on location or you could manage something.
1: Uh, we, we, we put together a menu like a, you know, the good old days of uh, retail, good, better, best. Uh-huh. And uh, thank you, Noli. Um, uh, and so we can, you know, we have enough uh, footage that we can put together a custom video. We could do a front end like we're doing now on a rear back end mm-hmm. uh, for someone who's on a tight budget. And then we've, we already had people say, well, we want to do on site. Mm -hmm. Okay. No problem. We have that ability because Johnny's a director and a producer. So it's, uh, it's very, uh, compelling and it's exciting. And, uh, I want to help integrators, you know, one of the, one of my pet peeves of, uh, of our industry. And I have spoken to people in other industries is that, uh, ageism does exist.
0: Mm.
1: And, um, uh, you know, I would never make claim to knowing everything, but I'll certainly make claim to having experienced a lot.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And,
1: you know, some of those things may repeat, you know, history has a tendency to repeat itself and, um, having someone around who, you know, been there, done that. Yeah. Yeah. You know,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it it helps if people want to listen and, uh, you're, you're keeping up with the times and, yeah. You know, even just doing this project with, with the video. It really shows that, you know, you don't you're you're not boxed in as a consultant. You can do you can swerve and go, you don't have to just yeah. consult with integrators on business. You can also do these video projects and find other opportunities, which is great. It's very flexible for you. So,
1: so I can you. I can go behind your rack and, and give commentary. Yeah. I'm not going to build your rack, but, you know, at the same time, and I can look at your P&L and, and give some commentary. I'm not an accountant, but, you know, I've been through the ups and downs. I've been through some recessions and I've been through some boom times, you know, and there are going to be ups and downs again. We're we're looking at one now.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We're all anticipating that next, next one. Fortunately, most of the veterans now have, have learned – to brace themselves. Now, have they changed their habits? Maybe not, but they're at least aware that they need to be prepared because it's not going to always be a boom period. You've got to be ready for that next downturn. It's going to (laughs) happen. It always does. Well, (laughs) Franklin, I I really appreciate your time today. And it's great to see you uh, continuing to bring value to this industry and uh, work with folks. And I hope that continues and that this new video project really works out well for you as well.
1: Thank you. It's, a, it's an industry that you know gave me a great career, uh, made a decent living and uh, made me happy. Still makes me happy. So uh, what the heck? that and my bicycle.
0: That's great to hear. Franklin Karp is the owner of Franklin Carp and Company. You can connect with Franklin at his website franklincarp.com. That wraps up today's show, which was produced by Residential Tech Today, IPW and Pretty Easy Podcasts. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com if you're looking to get professional production help on your own podcast at an affordable rate. And if you're new to Residential Tech Talks, please subscribe to the weekly podcast wherever you watch or listen to podcasts. Also, check out all the latest residential tech news at the magazine's website, restechtoday.com, where you can also subscribe to the print or digital magazine and to our Tuesday and Friday email newsletters. Until next time, Please stay safe, stay inspired, and let us know if you have a great story to tell.